Welcome to Juice Podcast. I'm Emily Harmon, and today Gwen's actually away, and I'm joined by David Cope. David's joining us from South Africa. So, David, tell us a little bit about what you do. So, I have a company called Public, uh, in based in Cape Town. We have a wine bar and a distribution business and an online retail side of the business, and essentially dealing with small artisan South African wine producers and started as a bar about almost seven years ago just as a way to basically drink more good interesting stuff and it's just evolved into what it is now and we've got a bar in Johannesburg as well and essentially just anything to do with the small good quality artisan producers in South Africa that's where we get involved yeah and when you opened up the first wine bar what was the wine scene like in Cape Town um, very much dominated by the big producers and the big brands, uh, mm. so much so that one of the prominent local wine journalists actually said there wasn't going to, because the idea behind the bar was to pour only smaller independent producers, and they actually said we're going to run out of wines to pour because yeah. there weren't enough. Um, and to be honest, I did have a thought, you know, there's at the time seven years ago, it was a very different industry. Um, there weren't nearly as many smaller producers making their own thing. Uh, it's completely changed now, but we didn't have had a problem with it. The moment we opened the doors, um, word got out, and I guess one of the best things in the wine world is that everyone's very friendly and helpful to each other in terms of the producers and winemakers. And yeah, so, as soon as we opened, people came and knocked on our doors and you know discovered yeah. wines, and yeah. they'd pour their wine, they'd mention someone else's wine, and we'd go find that, yeah. and this, that kind of steamrolled. And the next thing you know, we trying to decide which wines to pour and not pour and, and yeah. the, at the same time the, I think the, the industry has just exploded like the rest of the, the world in terms of the smaller natural producers I mean that's really cool I, when I was over in um, South Africa in November that's the thing that really struck me about it actually was how, uh, how strong the sense of community was bet- between everybody working in that business like I don't think I've seen that in quite the same way anywhere else in the world. Mm. Like, it's almost like people, the winemakers, particularly, like, I mean, I saw a lot in the Swartland, but then you kind of see, like, you know, the guys at Habriel's Clough, Cristal, like, you know, Memento. Like, yeah. they're all, there's, like, kind of collectives of people in place that are really working together and supporting each other. I don't think there's anywhere else. I mean, I'm not sure, but I don't know of anywhere else like that in the world where essentially they're competing against each other in the market. But when it comes to farming and production, you know, you have wine wine makers that share press with their neighbor and you have winemakers that are you know borrowing things the whole time and there's a lot of shared resources and you Promoting know neighbors each other. totally and they'll phone each other up and say look i'm having a you know there's something weird's happening with the fermentation and and their neighbor will you know offer advice and and it's just a like you said it's a community side of winemaking that's super friendly and and i guess also i won't say necessary but it's it's uh, it's, uh, it's an asset it's probably what's what's yeah. what's made the south african wine industry jump a lot in the last sort of decade i wondered as well i mean this is a bit of a question not to get too serious is it also because of you know that sort of slight political climate in like it's a com- like south africa's different to yeah. say like france isn't it because of um you know it's not always there are areas where there are risks and it's a little bit more fragile let's say in some ways do you think that has is that a contributing factor to why uh, people kind po- of stick together and look out for each other more or po- it's possible possibly yeah. um i mean i think my i guess it's a theory but it's not really sound but there's like a, a cycle of winemakers in south africa where 20 years ago 15 years ago all the wines were being made by these big bigger producers and more established names and 
they were making very good wine, but they weren't making the most exciting wines. And they probably weren't making the most exciting wines because they were doing it mostly as a business and oriented around mm. a certain approach. And then what happened, I guess, over the last decade and a bit longer was the younger winemakers that were working f- as you know, assistant winemakers or as winemakers at these farms started dabbling on their own stuff on the side. And because it was a side project, you know, they could be a bit more experimental. They could do things a bit wackier mm. and push the boundaries a bit. And for the producer that the, they're actually working for, it can be beneficial because of the stuff that they're finding out through their own experimentations. They can bring some of that knowledge into the main producer's farm, I mean, producer's wines. But ultimately what ends up happening is those side projects become bigger to the point where that winemaker goes off and does that full-time on his own. Yes. Um, and if you look at all the big names in South African wine that have emerged in the last two decades, like Saudi Family Wines or Baden Aust in the Swartland, um, a lot of the producers like Chris Dallum, um, other producers in, in Stellenbosch, they've, a lot of them started by winemakers that were you know, dabbling as side projects and they allowed that sort of flexibility and that kind of, you know, if you think about 50 winemakers doing that and started 50 smaller, produce, smaller brands and those wines are way more experimental and interesting, it's only because they could do it as a side project. If they got given you know, the capacity to say, look, you can make whatever you want, but there's a huge amount of money behind it, investment, don't fuck it up. They're, yeah, not, yeah. they're not going to do anything too crazy because they're going to be too safe. Um, and I think that's probably been the biggest boon for the industry is the experimentation, the trying things. And, yes. You know, the Swartland's a hotbed for it because I think 20 years ago the land was cheap there. So a lot of the young producers, mm. if they wanted to go buy a piece of land, that's where they did it. Um, it wasn't because it was you know, better or worse than any other region. It's just attracted people and, and from, an, I guess, a cost side. But then obviously there are some incredible vineyards and that also obviously makes a huge difference. I mean, the Swartland as well, just from a European perspective, particularly baking, like just based on my information or knowledge on uh, South African wines from working in the UK, I mean, I met Craig Hawkins, which now his wines tested longer at the time he was at Lamazook, and that was in 2012. And I remember at that point, it was when everybody started to get very, very excited about what was going on in Swartland. Craig was talking about the Swartland Revolution tastings that we're doing, which is now Swartland Independent Producer Tasting. Yeah, kind of. It's What's evolved, the name but of yeah. It? The Swartland, in, yeah. Swartland Independent Producers. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's quite impressive um, to what extent those wines have been so successful. So the new wave tasting in London last year was one of the most popular wine, like, Everybody I spoke Best to that wine went to it was just like, oh my God, yeah, people were queuing up. There was so much excitement around it and that's a real testament to, I think, the hard work and, and the work of people being a community together and how important it is to work that way. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's also done, incre- I mean, Craig Hawkins, you've got to get him on this because he's done so incredibly well. And Craig's coming to Berlin in May, so I was going to ask amazing. him. And he you did say, do. I don't really like doing that stuff, but I've known you for a long time, so I'll do it. No, he'll be I'll good. He's, I mean, he's also, and just, you know, to go back to like the styles of wines and things, but when he was working for Lammershook, I met him and actually did my very first sort of basically bit of, you know, cellar rat, you know, mucking about in the cellar, shoveling grapes at Lammershook under Craig for a couple of days, um, more than 10 years ago. But when he started doing his Testa Longer label there, um, actually, I think he started before he even started at Lammershook, but the stuff he was making back then was pretty wild. Um, and the stuff he's making now is still wild, but since he's gone on his own and he has to essentially make it work, it's, it's a bit more controlled and he's learned a lot over that time. And we were talking about, you know, pet nat and pet nat surprises and exploding bottles and things. And there's, um, yeah, there's basically a, what I'd call, 
a great, no, great progress in the sense of you know his what he started out doing and the learning curve you know in Testalonga and the quality of wine and it's probably one of the best natural wine producers and wine brands in the world right now. Anyway, Craig Hawkins is a rock star. Yeah, Craig Craig has really become a rock star. Um, I'm really proud of him. I think he deserves it. So yeah, hopefully okay. he'll come on the podcast soon. Craig, if you're out there, <laughs> Emily's come on. Emily's waiting. <laughs> yeah. So. What have you bought today? Because you've got a selection of wines and some of them look familiar to me, but some of them look like I've not seen them before. So I'm really... So we, I basically chose a, a, a handful just to, I guess, showcase some of the grapes and styles of wine that are coming out of South Africa now that don't... A lot of them don't make it onto the shelves in shops okay. elsewhere. So obviously, if you're into smaller producers, you can go find stuff. But I find, especially in Europe... A lot of importers will bring wines in and they'll distribute them through to a very small network, very close to where they're based. Mm. Uh, so in Germany, if they're based in Hamburg, the wines stick around there, or Berlin, possibly around here, and don't get to the other sides of the country. So a lot of the times people will see something in South Africa and then want to get it back home and they can't get it. So, um, But what they can always get are the big names that have big distribution and they see them everywhere. So I just thought it's nice to showcase a handful of wines that are yeah, great. different varieties, different styles, different things. I think it's good because, I mean, like you just said, um, South African Chenin is, I think it's, it's uh, it has a strong identity and quite a lot of people are familiar with it, so it's nice to... So, I mean, South African Chenin is the base of, I'd say, majority of our great white wines. It's, you know, it's it's huge and it's, and it's one of the best things we have and all those old Chenin vines are amazing. But there's also other stuff. Yeah. So for me, it's quite exciting to look at some of that other stuff and get people to try it. Um, so you know, we, what we did at the bar, and when we started out at the bar, the whole point was to get people to try alternative varieties. So we didn't... We actually, on the first night we were open, we had some Chardonnays and some uh, some Cab, and we had a couple of other things. And that's... You know, when, you look, when people walk into a spot and they see a wine list and they only recognize two wines because it says Chardonnay or Merlot, that's what they ordered and that's all we sold that night because no one was ordering the Columbard yep. and the Hoche Levelu and that stuff because they're like I can't even pronounce the it? word yeah. so um, we realised the next day the only way to force people to drink the weird stuff is to only offer the weird stuff so from essentially day two we just stopped we just cut all mainstream varieties except for a few that I have a weakness for like Pinot Noir yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah essentially no no Chardonnay no Sauvignon Blanc no Merlot no Cab okay. um, so I've got a bunch of wines. The first I'm going to pour you is a Muscat. Great. So this is made by Andre Brains. He makes very, very tiny amounts of wine. And just um, for everybody that's tuning in, the name of the wine is City on a Hill Muscat Alexandria 3. 2018. 2018 from the Swartland. So Andre is, you know, I was talking about winemakers and the evolution. So he's actually working with uh, David Sardia, David and Nadia. Mm-hmm. And this is his side project. So, uh, and it's called City on a Hill. It started out as a, a white blend, and then you introduced the Muscat. And for me, what's great about this is there's a lot of Muscat planted around the Cape, and obviously predominantly used for dessert wine. Um, in South Africa, this you know, the nickname for it is Hanaput. And so, you know, I grew up. My mom would have a little glass of Hanaput every evening in winter, just to like ward off the cold. But okay. it's obviously like horrendously sticky, sweet stuff. Um, and 300 grams of sugar and just intense but Muscat makes amazing dry white and what I find is phenomenal with it is I mean this one 
like a lot of muscat's going to have that sort of lychee freshness, that sort of character. But this one for me has got a bit more mineral, a bit more weight on it. Yeah, definitely on the nose as well. It's quite restrained for muscat. Like, I mean, you, you can see that it's it's got those sort of floral aromatic edges there on the on the nose. But it's not... And a bit of it's, it's just going into this slight touch of exotic fruit, like this mm. papaya or something, pawpaw, that it, it's just drifting. And there's a... For me, muscat's great in the sense that this one, not as much as a lot of other ones that I've tried recently where... But it's basically that sort of paradox between a slightly sweet, intensely floral nose, but then, you know, it's super dry on the palate and it's got that sort of weight on the palate that, you know, for people that are not expecting that and they see the word muscat in the label, they automatically assume sweetness and yes. they get a little bit of that in the nose, but then when it comes to the palate, it surprises them. And that's a super fun thing for me to give to, um, to pour with people or to share with people, which I think is super interesting. This is the thing that I like about this as well is that there's quite nice texture on the wine because mm. sometimes with muscat, you can really struggle with, um, like, if for dry muscat, it can sometimes be a little bit bitter, but there isn't this. It's, uh, it's, it's actually no, very nice. And I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure of every step on the winemaking, but I'm pretty sure this is fermented in old barrels and just left for probably about six yeah. months or maybe even a year um and that's probably where a lot of that texture is coming from yeah nice yeah very good and um so i mean do you know how many bottles you know that's just too geeky to ask Num- numbers and bottles are not my okay. forte but i think he probably exports like a lot of these smaller producers exports probably about half his stock um it's possible you know only a couple of barrels made of these wines and that's what keeps it exciting as well is because there's such small production they, can, they really can play around a lot yeah you know it's not like if something goes wrong it's half the revenue and supply gone down yep. the drain so that flexibility i think is quite key what do you think about food pairing for this for me um i probably look towards something with seafood i'd probably say some sort of charred scallop or prawn or that sort of thing something with a bit of uh, fruit and a bit of spice in it almost Thai style that sort of thing yeah I was um, even thinking so when I was in South Africa I went to Paternoster mm. and I had this prawn kind of like lightly fragrant Indian kind of coconutty yeah curry sort of style thing but not too spicy that would be very nice with this I say prawn I but I can't eat prawns because I'm allergic but somehow it comes into my head anyway <laughs> Have you ever eaten one? Yeah, no, I used to be able to eat them, but I just... No, I, and, I, it, I, and as you got older... I got to a point and I just said no, and, you know, that was that. No more prawns. So other seafood. I can eat mollusks and those things, so scallops will eat? do for oh, me. I think, I think I might have had prawns when we were at that Chapman's Peak, and I think Tor did as well, and then you didn't, that's why. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Choose life. <laughs> yeah. Choose no prawns it's for very me. poignant right now. Choose life. <laughs> sure. And then the next wine I'm obviously horrendously biased on because I made it myself. Oh, did you? Oh, but we tasted this, didn't we? I think we, we tasted this we in We tasted this in, in, um, in South Africa together. Yeah. Yeah, great. So this is a field blend. So that's the only reason I made this wine was I made a Grenache about sure, four years ago. And <clears throat> the Grenache was... Just a once-off, I figured it was super fun, just, you know, getting my hands dirty, making the wine. I'm not a winemaker, not trained in any way, but making the wine is a lot of fun. And two years later, I wanted to make it again and connected through a good friend, Tremaine Smith, who's the Blacksmith Wines, and, you know, I found myself in the back of a bucky driving around an old Grenache vineyard in Darling um, with a, 
of him and a viticulturist and somehow the, the words field Yaku. blend Yaku yeah. yeah yeah rock star viticulturist and uh, <laughs> so Yaku mentioned a field blend vineyard and I just you know my ears popped and I was like if there's any chance of getting some fruit field blends are super rare um, I think probably everywhere in the world but in South Africa particularly there's hardly any field blends um, and which for me is and the idea of a field blend is such a great you know concept there's got the, you know, the vineyard that's got all these different types of varieties all planted together and this is 13 different varieties all interplanted in one big vineyard um, in the Paderberg and so there's a bit of Shannon there's I'm not going to remember them all, but it's Semillon, Semillon Gris, Palomino, there's Sauvignon, there's Chardonnay, there's Crucian Blanc, there's Colombard, there's, what have I missed out? There's, there's a lot, there's Muscat. Um, and so what makes it so interesting is all those different characters in one wine, but not blended afterwards, but, you know, from the, from the, yep. from the actual vineyard into the tank, I mean, into the press, into the, the tank fermenting together, and the characters of all of them come out in different ways, and it's slightly schizophrenic almost. Every time you take a sip, you get something slightly different, and that's what makes for me the field blend. Yeah, special. This is delicious. I mean, I've already. I know that you're just tasting it now, but I'm. I've just already had some. It's really interesting, actually, on the nose because it's got this kind of like pear skin quality on the nose. And pithy, like an, I mean, yeah. I just salted now and it's and tasted. And it's got quite a strong green olive. Sort of martini character almost. Yeah, a right dirty now. martini. Yeah. But it changes. That's the thing for me. It completely changes. I mean, I guess all wine changes the temperature. But mm. for me, field blends, they've got more capacity to change because they've got more inherent variety of, you know, I guess, flavor notes. Yeah. Lovely texture on that wine as well. I know what you mean about that. I think it's almost like the fattiness of olive brine as well because olive brine's not just... It's not like vinegar, right? There's like a fatty, oily mm. edge to it as well. It's basically like a dirty, like you said, it's a dirty martini wine. Yeah, sounds great, doesn't yeah. it? I'm a massive martini fan. You could drink a bottle though, but if you drank a, a bottle of dirty martini, you'd probably feel slightly worse for wear the next day. Yeah, I might not be able to get home. No. <laughs> what about martinis in South Africa? Do people get into the old martinis over there? There's definitely a, what's the word, a resurrection of the classic cocktails. So... That's, Martinis, I mean, they're classic for a reason. Negronis, Audrey Hepburn, you know, she never gets uglier. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think also we were what I'd call in the cocktail doldrums for many years. So if you ordered a daiquiri, it basically came in a, out of a blender, frozen, you know, with strawberries and a little umbrella. It wasn't daiquiris. We are coming off a very low base of quality cocktails. So the last sort of, I don't know, five, ten years has been very good. And the resurrection of the classic cocktail. So, yeah, you can get a good martini now in Cape Town and so, Joburg or wherever you are. And Africa. Negronis, yeah. I guess. And a good Negroni. Yeah. And the GNTs are a big thing as well, right? GNTs well, on the street. GNTs are huge. I mean, we, when we started the bar, we only served wine and we had one beer. That was it. And we had a brandy. That was the only drinks options. And then I love a Negroni, so we started adding a Negroni. And then gin and tonic, one loves gin and tonic. And then, you know, giving people a few more choices and beers. But... Yeah, so those are pretty much all we offer still at the moment. But if you've got, I mean, you got a Negroni and you've got a gin and tonic and you've got wine, you've got beer, you've pretty much got everything you need. Yeah, exactly. I'm with you. The only thing I would say, I do have a little bit of a soft spot for pina coladas. There's a song that pops into your I head when you, when you say that word. Which apparently is like a bit of a fucked up song, actually. The meaning behind that song is like, going to be a bit know. weird. But, yeah, no, I love a pina colada. I'm instantly transported on holiday. So if I need to really give myself a little cheer up, 
I go out for a pina colada. But would you go for a pina colada when it's cold? Or would you have to do it in summertime? Because it seems like a strange. I mean, I think it's. I think you would do. You'd smash more of them in the summer. But if it, I don't know if the if the occasion was right and it felt good, I'd go for it because they're just delicious. There's a similar cocktail to a pina colada, which they make in the like the Caribbean, British West Indies, that sort of area, and it's called a painkiller, and they basically grate nutmeg over the finished similar mix of things and rum and stuff but it's called a painkiller and it's also perfectly acceptable to drink it in the morning apparently when you're there I mean isn't that what holiday I mean holiday life on the beach yeah. is about just consuming alcohol from but the minute you, you wake you up you can't do it every day in a row because the hangover is brutal from a painkiller yeah why is it kind of pain- so it's more like a pain inducer yeah it's like, sorry you've got the name it's, wrong it's like a lot of alcohol I guess <laughs> I guess it depends how many you drink as well, right? Definitely, yeah. And what about well, you? And what you drink. Come on, what's yeah. your little... You must have a little cocktail that you just... You're a little bit embarrassed about, but you do like it. And you don't want, like... You mean like you a cure? Like a hangover cure? No, like... Oh, like a cocktail. Cosmos, like, have you got a little conf- co- cocktail confession? Sure. Um, I, I don't dapple much beyond a Negroni, to be honest. I'm trying <sighs> to think. Yeah. I mean... He's just being protected. I honestly himself. don't. I, I, there's, I wouldn't. I mean, I don't actually, have a pina colada story on myself, was, unfortunately. No. I Pen- think public wine bar, Cape Town, perfect drink they should be offering. Pina colada aperitivo. We can Why definitely you do, do a, a pina colada party. I think we can do a pina colada pop up because we love doing pop ups with different chefs and themes. So we could definitely do a pina colada pop up. We did a Sicilian pop up, so now we just need to do like a Carib- Caribbean pop up or. Miami, yeah, Miami some, something yeah, like that. Do some jerk chicken. If you do Miami, you've got to do Froze. Fro- we've done Froze. Oh, there you yeah, go. Froze's good. Froze's yeah. a fun time. I like the Miami one. Everyone has to wear Hawaiian shirts, like Don Johnson vibes. And, yeah. Miami Pina coladas. Will Smith's video. Bad sunglasses. Silk shirts. Yeah, be quite funny. I think he's wearing a pink silk shirt and white trousers in that music video, Miami. <laughs> and it's like on the speedboat. Oh, my God. That, that's like... Days of watching MTV. I know. Have you watched? I, it's so funny because I was looking at um, Katy Perry's new music video, and she's like, and I quite like it. I'm not into her music, um, except if there's like a comedic opportunity to use her music. But I saw the last one, and she's sort of sitting on this. I don't know what she's sitting on, but she's basically on a mountain of flowers, and the flowers are like forming her dress. She's singing about getting married or whatever, and I'm just like, oh, they used to be much cooler music videos. That was, yeah, the MTV back in the the early 2000s, that's when it was good. Yeah. Back I when, when I was supposed to be at university. Even the 90s, like, 90s, like, we used to have a show, Top of Pops, as well. I remember Top of Pops, I watched that. Yeah, did you have that? Was, did you have your own version, or was it the UK? No, Top the UK Pops? one, yeah. But it was, I mean, that was amazing. Like, and you just see, like, but then they just performed live. It was only like yeah. Yeah, but like then you'd find out who's number one. Like that's what you yeah. would do. So it was, like, it was the reveal. Nirvana's coming in performing stuff. It was brilliant. Top of the Did pops. Nirvana played Top of the Pops. Yeah, but he never got invited. Kurt Cobain never got invited back because he was so sarcastic when he did it. So he was just like, because oh, it's mine. I mean, he could it's have mine. Been. That's why I hear. they don't actually sing. Don't they? something like that. I don't know if it was mine, but you it, anyway. It was either that he was really wrecked, or I think it was a little bit like a fuck you. Yeah. Top of the Pops thing going on. I remember something about that. Yeah. Funny. What have we got next? That wine's delicious. I almost could have a bit more of that. That's so tasty. You can have a bit more of that if you I want. I mean, yeah. 
do it. Yeah, I will. It's going to take me at least 10 seconds to open this next. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's like, that's like two glasses of wine. <laughs> this next bottle. So, and just to be clear, so the wine that we've just tasted uh, with David here, so this is, uh, it's called Full Moon White 2018. And is Full Moon the name of the winery? Well, like, is that your brand yeah, name? Yeah, I mean, winery's a big, yeah, that's the, that's the name of the brand. Um, there's no big, uh, beautiful, biodynamic, full moon harvest story behind it. It's actually more inspired by um, a personal connection to the, the cellar where we actually make the wine is the cellar that we got married at and there was a full moon. And so oh, that's more so of a nice. personal story than a, yeah. a farming story. But people generally ask if it's a full moon because it's harvested at full moon. And it sounds nice, but not actually the truth. No, just full moon in name. <laughs> Okay, so... I mean, there's many... Oh, very nice. I don't know if you've had any Raised by Wolves wines before. I had one bottle of one of their wines, and I don't... I feel like it was a semi-on, but it was... Not skin contact like this. No, it wasn't the skin contact. So this is one of my favourite things in South African wine, is like the little anecdotes and the names of wines and grapes. So semi-on in Afrikaans is khundref, which is green grape. And then Simeon Gris, because it's obviously got the Gris, it's the red-coloured fruit, it's known as Reuchrundreif, which is red-green grape. So this is Reuchrundreif Simeon. It's basically Simeon red-green grape. Um, and okay. it's, there's that mutation in the vineyard that's harvested separately and pressed and obviously gets a little bit of colour from a little bit of skin contact. And so it's this delightful, slightly pink, rusty colour. Um, yeah, I it, know. It's almost like sort of this sort of burnt orange, rusty. Yeah, but, I mean, it looks like an orange wine, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean there's, there's 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 a bit of skin contact in here. I mean, it's a uh, and it's definitely I want to call part of this sort of natural new wave style. Um, but yeah, this is raised by Wolves Semillon La Colline 2017, but the Roy Chrundre version. Okay. Um, and, and the only way to distinguish the two is by that sticker at the top, red, right? Little red sticker on the top yeah. of the bottle. Okay. And in South Africa, there's obviously, like most countries, there's a sort of controlling body for the wine industry, and they don't actually officially recognize this as a separate grape. So the Semillon is the grape, whether it's Chrundreif or Roy Chrundreif, the white or the, I mean, the green or the, or the red grape, it's just Semillon on the books. So technically this is like an unofficial designation, but it's Semillon. But yeah, compared to his other Semillon, which is just, you know, the normal green grapes, it's a completely, completely different wine. Um, texture, smell, aromatic, like everything, it's just a, a whole different world. And one of my favorite wines in South Africa, um, so Adam Mason is the winemaker. And again, side project, he's the winemaker for a big seller that produces good, you know, big volumes, good quality wine, exports tons of it around the world. Um, and then this is his little side project to get his hands dirty in the cellar and make small barrels of this and yep. barrels of that. And I think over the years, he's discovered different vineyards around the Cape that he wanted to work with. And one of them was the Semillon Gris vineyard. And yeah, makes one exceptional wine. Yeah, nice. So I took just the normal Semillon. I mean, I shouldn't say normal, but they're just mm. Semillon Blanc. Um, and I bought that at the wine shop at Chapman's Peak Hotel mm. and I drank it like two weeks after I got back from South Africa and I was like every sip I was just it was so delicious I wanted to down you know when you get those wines where you're like you this is just so it. satisfying yeah. like Thorn and Daughters I find it yeah. like that that opulence I kind of like it and I don't think his style's quite as textured as that but um, I would just it was so delicious the wine I was like oh man I can't get any more of this but isn't that the this. best like quality in a wine is it's just it's something that just makes you want to you know it's like, for me it's like food if you're eating food 
and it's making you hungrier because it's so delicious. It's like the same thing with wine. If you're drinking a wine yeah. and it makes you thirsty to drink more because yeah. the wine's so good, it excites you. For me, that's the best quality a wine can have. You know, obviously, there's variations on textures and character and balance and stuff, but when you just want to drink more of it while you're drinking it, that's, I guess, the ultimate compliment mm. for a wine. But this, yeah, this, this wine is... Most of his wines are what I'd, I'd say are some of the most interesting wines and, and, and super well-made. You know, they're very much what I'd call alternative. So Roichrindreif Semillon, he makes a, a dry muscat as well. He makes a, a Sinso Cab blend. Um, he's making slight skin contact, barrel-edged Sauvignon. So he's really, like, pushing it out there mm. with different styles of wines, but they're all made so well that they don't taste overly funky. They just taste really interesting. No, this is what so I mean this is great. This would be um, a great wine to get people interested in orange wine because the tannins are really balanced by that texture and that fruit component in this. So it doesn't feel abrasive or too firm on the tannin side in some way to me. It's, it's yeah, I mean for me there's always this thing of like any wine you look at it from the there's drinkability and there's interest and you kind of want it like if you're way too interesting you can't it's not drinkable you know there's a lot of wines like that that are great to taste but you don't want to drink a glass and then there's the wines that are just drinkable they're not interesting like commercial crap basically that's just you know there's no real like character but being in the middle road in the middle of between sort of drinking drinkable and interesting stuff like this where it's it's got a bit of it's got super interesting character but it's very drinkable um someone that's properly into their wine and wants to try experimental stuff would love it and geek out in it and someone that yeah. just wants to have a nice glass of wine could still appreciate it too so and just to go into this um la colina is the name of the vineyard right which is also where um chris alhite gets his semi on from yeah there's a, bunch, is one there's of a yeah, the bunch of wine top. bunch of winemakers getting fruit from the same vineyard yeah um very famous vineyard in franchuk yeah and i mean that field blend that you know we tasted beforehand there's also a bunch of winemakers that get fruit from there i think it's when there's when there's big vineyards and there's good fruit and you know people find out about it and you know share information and people want to get hold of some of it and most of the winemakers won't take all of it so yeah it's i guess when there's when there's a good quality vineyard the good winemakers will find out about it and get involved so yeah like Aline's pretty famous it's this is such an interesting wine really keep going back to it every time you're chatting away on got quite like a a tea like character yeah i was thinking like that a, almost like this it's almost got like this sort of like i won't say resin but this sort of like freshly rolled tobacco mm. but like the, i know what you mean like this tea leaf it's a very strong for me we drink obviously a rooibos red bush i don't know what the translation yeah, no, is tea in south rooibos, africa yeah. but it's a, there's a quite a strong rooibos character in there um, obviously, the, the tannin as well is nice, bit more tannin than the other Semillon he makes. It's yeah, phenomenal wine. Has I think anybody ever done a um, South African approach on the old Retsina and put some rooibos into their wine? Someone has done that. Have they? How yes. was it? I didn't try. It. <laughs> I like I like that there was a slightly judgy tone to your response. No, not at all. <laughs> I'm all for experimentation yeah. with grapes. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't. I, it's. It's definitely happened. People are, are playing around with stuff, but for me, the moment you're doing that, it's not a wine anymore. It's not a cocktail because mm. you know you're throwing in some robots, maybe throwing a bit of vodka. You know, next thing you know, you're halfway to a pina colada. It's like I think it's just a different world. Um, I think it's fine. It's great. You know, if it's if it's a product and it gets people to drink wine, at the end of the day, then it's a win. 
mm. and ultimately that's the way I look at it. But for myself, I'm not really interested in drinking tea-infused wines. No, no, I just thought I, want, I just was just went into my mind. I know um, Ardy's growing some rooibos on his farm. That was very entertaining when I went to see him. I think Artie's growing a bit of everything. I know, there's all the caper production going down, yeah. caper flowers, like so I'm salting them, like that guy is plugged I mean, into so much stuff. S- smoking agave plants to make mezcal type, you know, he's just, there's like, always oh, something I'm happening. I'm making mezcal, vermouth and, and, and wine and I've decided that I've still got a lot more time yeah, on well, my hands. He's so crushed it with the wine, it's like, you know, he's, he's like Bardnost has done, I mean, hey, Bardnost has done so well that I think he's, he's got some time to play around with other things. Yeah, and do you know, I think I'd be the same. I think I'd be like, why not just do something else? No, he's an innovator. That's what he yeah. does. Makes sense. I mean, yeah. He's a, a force of nature. Okay, should we try a light red? Mm. So I brought what I'd call Pinotage 2.0. So, Pinotage 2.0. So what do you mean by Pinotage 2.0? So, I guess classic style of Pinotage in South Africa would be a heavier style of red. Mm-hmm. If, you drink, if you just picked up a bottle of Pinotage off the shelf five years ago, ten years ago, you're going to be expecting a full-bodied red, um, a lot of tannin, a lot of fruit, probably a high alcohol. And I think that's just generally how it was made, like most South African red wines. And it doesn't necessarily make sense when you think of Pinotage is a blend of, on a blend, it's a hybrid created from two more lighter weight grapes. Mm. So it's essentially Cinsa and Pinot Noir. To, to make a heavy style out of that doesn't necessarily make sense in mm. my view um, and there are some that do actually did very well um, but there are a lot that didn't and got a little bit of, a bit of bad publicity for the grape and yeah I mean there was always that thing when I remember when I did my first WSCT course I think it was in like 2009 or 2010 and um, they were like well if you get a pinotage on your blind wine tasting it smells like black bin bags Black bin bags, you know, or like plastic black. tar roads. Yeah, or... and it was just like, all right, well, that sounds like shit. Easy one, like, to, easy one to spot. Yeah, but um, I mean, they also never give you that on the blind tasting. But but I can get. I mean, that's the reality. Is like I think a lot of those, a lot of pinotages made historically did have that. They weren't. Yeah. I think, and it's a difficult grape to grow when you think about. If you look at it on a negative way, you're going to have all the bad characteristics of Pinot Noir, like tricky and hard to farm and, you know, virus, you know, that sort of stuff. And then you've got the bad characteristics of Cinso, which would probably say a little bit thin, you know, in character, um, I don't know, a little bit coarse. So you could look at it that way and you put all the bad characteristics of them into one wine, it's not going to sound very good. But if you look at something like this, you got all the good characteristics of it. You've got all the fruitiness from Pinot. You've got the cherry flavor. You've got like a nice bit of clove. You got all the good character from Cinso, where you know there's again a nice softness of fruit. There's what I call like a really crunchy, like easy tannin, and it makes for an amazing wine. Um, I think this is for me a, a style of Pinotage that people can get excited about. You know, yeah. if you like Pinot, if you like Cinso, if you like Gamay, yeah, it's that style of wine. So for me, it's I'd love to see more of these. And there are thankfully quite a few more of these style of Pinotages coming onto the market. This one is made by a winemaker named Jacques de Klerk, who's, again, what's, so the side name project. Of the, yeah, so, so Jacques de Klerk, is that the winery name if people are trying to find the wine? Like, what would be the Reverie. name? So Reverie. So Reverie is his, his label. Um, so it's just the Pinotage, and he does a Chenin Blanc as well. 2019, 2019. Is that, yeah. So it just released a few months ago, and, yeah, this is the second vintage of Pinotage is done, uh, and 
for me, this is a great model for how Pinotage can work. So a bit of carbonic maceration during during winemaking, which essentially just allows the sort of brighter, super light, cherry flavors to come out of the grapes into the wine. Um, yeah, just very drinkable. What's nice for me about this um, is that it, there's not too much carbonic as well, because I also noticed that when I was in South Africa, sometimes there was Pinotage where it's so carbo that you just got all mm. these... You know, it's the same with, like, you use the comparison of Beaujolais when we're talking about it. So yeah. I think that's the same for Gamay. Like, it's nice to have a little bit of whole cluster so you get that intercellular fermentation or whatever. Um, so you're getting these lovely preserved, bright fruit and floral notes or whatever. But not but, overdoing it. But not overdoing it because otherwise it's too bubblegummy. But what's really nice about this is you've got that, but then you've got a nice... There's still enough fruit and a little bit of density to the fruit that it doesn't just sort of feel like it's high-toned and thin mm. I mean, for me it's like just going down that road of talking about carbonic and using it as a, a means to adjust the flavor profile of a wine rather than identify it as a carbonic yes. wine for me it's such a like a interesting way to talk about wine and you know how i think from a the layman's perspective when people look at a bottle of wine they go oh it's pinotage this is what pinotage tastes like and then you know if it's a blend oh this is what a you know a border style blend tastes like mm. but the amount of things that a winemaker can do that are completely natural, letting the wine do its thing, but just guiding it in different ways. And, you know, that'll change the character and make it something that's completely different to a wine from the same variety, like carbonic, like skin contact with whites, you know, and like, do, I'd say use it when, when, you, when they're using those as, I guess, tools to add character to the wine, rather than just to become the identifiable part of the wine. I yeah. think it's such a great thing. You know, it's not about this being a carbonic pinotage. It's about being a light, fresh, easy drinking red that you know the winemaker made from pinotage and used carbonic maceration to yep. help create that wine which i think is great this would fit into my smashable wine category this is very smashable yeah yeah this um, is also one of those as you're drinking it you want to drink more yeah 100 percent. nice and chilled out the fridge it could be a bit cold actually but yeah no uh, this i quite like it at this temperature but you're right it could be a bit chilled it's 12.5 percent alcohol just looked at the back of the label as well no, but I like it because beautiful. because what's nice about this is you've got that carbonic lift, but then you've kind of got this slightly flashy fruit about it as well. Also, like, I mean, for me, I get a lot of clove on the nose and up front, and that, that sort of spicy character, which I think is also gives it a slightly different character to if it was just a Cinso or a Pinotage or something, I mean, a yeah. Pinot Noir yeah. or something else. Or Gamay, I don't, I don't normally get that sort of character on Gamay. Yeah, mm. very nice wine. Yum. And again, like I was saying, side project. So he's a winemaker at <clears throat> another cellar at Radford Dale. Yep. Also a very good producer. Um, we're going to try one of their wines next. But this is his side project. So it allows him to experiment, make things like this. And then obviously some of that knowledge transfers across to his work at Radford yeah, Dale. Yeah, yeah, that's so, interesting. Where he's also a partner in that. So it's, yeah, it's, it's I think that what I call like the the exponential expansion of labels and production in South Africa that's happened over the last five years these types of things is just that's why the quality of wine has gone up so I mean, much so it, I mean the creativity the level of creativity and expression is, is really exciting yeah. and it's easy I mean not easy in the sense that anyone can do it but easy in the sense that if a winemaker decides that if an assistant winemaker at a winery and I know winemakers are doing this they might be 21 years old 23 years old and they're in their second year of making wine at harvest you know full time employed decides they want to make a barrel of something they can do it 
yeah. they can get it out there and they can use social media to connect it out to the market and they can get it done and, and sell it. So it's the, the market is, is so accessible for winemakers making wine now that it makes sense that there are so many more options out there. But that just obviously wasn't the case 20 years ago. Mm. But the, market, yeah, the, the quality of wine is better for it, so I think it's great. No, it's a really exciting time. Very, very exciting time for wine. Nice. Okay. Okay. So Gamay, we, we mentioned. So. So this is Gamay. This is Gamay from. I South didn't Africa. know that there was Gamay in South Africa. So Radfordell is the only producer that makes Gamay in South Africa. They plant that themselves. They have planted some themselves, and then I think they have a lease or a long-term lease on the only other Gamay vineyards that exist. Mm, they're turning into the Gamay mafia. Yeah, mafia. <laughs> all all six hundred bottles. It's like or the so avocado mafia. Yeah. It's like I'm taking all the resources. <laughs> yeah, I mean, literally, there's they 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 own Gamay in South Africa, um, and they have planted. Like I said, they've planted quite a bit now, so they are planning to grow it as a as a product. Um, so we've got Raffadel the Antidote Gamay Noir 2018 from Stellenbosch. So I mean, Gamay. I guess a lot of people would just think of Beaujolais, and then naturally maybe think of Beaujolais Nouveau. And Gamay being this shitty, thin, you know, party wine. Um, and anyone that's drunk good Morgan wines would know Gamay as being, you know, slightly more serious, you know, something that can rival no, Pinot I think, Noir. I think Beaujolais is the last discovered fine wine region of France. Fuck it. You know, there, like, there it you go. took a so, while for people to catch up, but it's... You and Alex Dale would get on well with that perspective. I know, I didn't get to see him. We had an email exchange. I didn't get to see him... Um, Tour was like oh, candid itinerary so tight when we were in South Africa and I was like two weeks was not enough actually I'm really excited to come to go back and and um, no you got well you got to visit places. next time I mean yeah, you, yeah. Uh, he's yeah but I, th- I just think the fact that he's got an understanding of and he obviously lived in France for a while and he's got a very strong connection there and he imports a lot of French wines into South Africa and I think the fact that he can make you can basically take Gamay and say, I'm going to make a proper thing out of this in South Africa. And he's done it. I mean, this wine for me is, you know, he's, he's got another wine called Thirst, which is a more fun, fresh style Gamay, very light and, and juicy, fruity. And then he's got this, is just his more serious style of Gamay, um, which I think is phenomenal as a wine. And like in terms of what Gamay can do in South Africa, I think it's great. And they're also very much, they're not a huge producer of wine, but mm. they, they like to experiment with different things. So they've done... Skin contact, claret blanche, whites, they've done uh, the Gamay, they do a, a super light carbonic style. Sinso, they do no sulfur added wines, they do, yeah, they just they play around with a lot of things, but generally the quality is up there on everything um, and makes them a really good, reliable brand, I guess, in terms of the smaller natural producers in South Africa to look for. So I always like working with their wines. This is really interesting. I mean, I like that, um, I mean, it's, it, this is a wine as well that, I think would be interesting for people, you know, with that hook of what you mentioned about discovering a great variety that you wouldn't try before. So mm. sort of going off the beaten path, if you like, for South African wine. But it has a very sort of classic approach to the winemaking as well. So it's not a wine that would be sort of intimidating to a lot of people. It's, no, it's super it's, accessible. It's just like the, what we were doing earlier. It's something that's yeah. completely out there and wacky if you talk about it. But then if you just pour it for someone and give them a glass of, here's a glass of light red... They'll drink it. It's delicious. There's yeah, nothing, no, there's nothing really. wacky or weird about it, you know, other than it's the only one of two games made in the country. But I also think it's a great reflection of what... I mean, that's... Like, with, same with the Pinotage mm. and the Muscat and the Semillon Gris. Just a reflection of what else is out there in terms of interesting mm. 
grape varieties and styles of wine being made outside of the norm and the big brands and you know just very exciting stuff I like that a lot nice little I mean Gamay never has a lot of tannin but there are obviously some tannins there but they're so fine Mm. it's a really I think it's a very uh, correct wine it's got it's classic like you said lovely fruit but like that kind of lead pencil thing that you sometimes see with like cooler climate pinot um touch of herbal edge so again it's like it's it's there's a lot of integrity to that wine I like it a lot glad to try that so Alex actually imports the Foyard oh, cool. Morgan Cote de Pie Cuvée Corsalette those wines so he's a big big Gamay lover um, and actually the only reason I've started to appreciate Gamay is through those wines that he brings into South Africa um, but they are phenomenal and I guess I also can't afford to <laughs> drink Burgundy all the time so yeah. drinking Beaujolais I mean, is a great you alternative have, you can have the top Beaujolais wines for the price of Village yeah Village Bourgogne, like it's really difficult. And they're incredible. Yeah. They're just not as historically sexy as... This is what's so interesting about the natural wine movement, is that we're kind of redefining what is good wine. What what are these regions? Like, what is fine wine? What does that mean? And and just because of its other, it doesn't mean that it's lesser. Well, yeah, fine wine is basically... I mean, I was this thing, it's like the, the never-ending cycle. Fine wine is the wines that were planted in France whatever many hundred years ago and they were bought by the British and then everyone else started planting them elsewhere because that's what was being sold and people were buying it and then because people were buying it people were planting it and that's what happened everywhere so the people came to South Africa and you know from Europe and planted grapes obviously they planted the same stuff that was being grown in France at the time so yeah. everywhere Cab, Merlot, Shiraz, Sauvignon, Chardonnay that's what they planted doesn't necessarily mean that it's better than Assyrtico or Tempranillo or yeah, other interesting sense. grapes from you know other kind of Verdeo like but those wines just didn't get planted mm. um, and I think that's the consumer cycle everyone's buying the same stuff because it's fine wine it's just actually historically that and it's popular but there's so much more interesting stuff out there if people like if people can expand their horizons and not what they're looking for and but obviously it's harder they, but those key regions as well also instilled like knowledge into producers as well so there'd be we know much more about Pinot Noir than we do, say, Assertico, for example, just because of um, I don't know the breadth about of where it's... <laughs> there it's go. Greek. Yes, that's the point. Sun-resistant. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a skin contact weird Assertico to take back with you. Nice. That will not be Sounds anywhere. delicious. Yeah, it is very delicious. <laughs> but it won't be probably a reference point for the grape, but it'll be an no. experience. There are actually some producers that have planted Assertico in South Africa. I know. I tried Evans... Which I think is fun. I think the more, the more interesting things that they can plant and try, see what works. And I mean, it's smart it's because the climate is very suited. Like it's similar, like drought. You, you yeah, know, it's, drought. It's not getting any grapes. colder. Yeah. Or wetter. Or wetter. Yeah. So, it's, it makes sense. I mean, those traditional French grapes don't. Well, not all of them, of course, but a lot of them don't, do not do very well in some places like the Swartland, where it's crazy hot. I mean, mm. some survive different clones and things, but yeah. The Spanish, the Portuguese grapes are doing really well there. Do you want to try yeah. Pinot? Yeah, definitely. I know, mainly because I know Cristalum. Yes. Yeah, so Cristalum is Peter Allen Furnesson, arguably, arguably the... One of the tallest men in wine in South Africa. He's very tall, isn't he? Arguably one of the tallest men in South Africa. <laughs> 
exactly what I was going to say. I knew it. That's There's a lot of tall men in South African I need, Is there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Old mate who makes the Shenan. Oh, I mean, I, mean I, can't, I don't know who you're talking about because there's so many Blonde tall Blonde hair, people. looks like he could be a Viking. Donovan, Donovan Rawl? Yes. Yeah, tall. He's so tall. Mm-hmm. Even David from David, David Sardi. Yeah, he's very tall. tall. That's true. There's tall, there's just lots of tall South African winemakers. But I can't think of any others, but I'm sure there's more. There's more. It's like a rugby team. Yeah, Lucas van Lockenberg. Okay. I mean, we could probably put a full rugby team together. Yeah, I mean... Definitely a few packs of forwards. Yeah. <laughs> There's not many wingers out there. Yeah. Yeah. Craig. But um, Craig, Craig, Craig would be a fly-off. Craig's not yeah. that tall bit. No, he's, I don't know. He feels like he's taller than he was. I don't know. No. Not compared to Peter Allen, though. No, Peter Allen's no. very tall. No, anyway, so Peter yeah. Allen. So he's... Uh, I mean, he's... I, th- I think Chris Dallum has been out there for just over 10 years, and he's already one of the top... Pinot Noir producers in the country so that's well, pretty phenomenal and what I love about him is he didn't even study winemaking like he learned he studied philosophy yeah and he's made he makes like it's funny because then you look at other people who have like Stompy's been to a viticultural school right and he's like he's like I mean it's, maybe it comes down to a personality he went to, thing we went well. to a viticultural school I mean, but, it, but it looks like he studied philosophy whereas Peter <laughs> Allen studied philosophy but it and it looks like he went to viticulture yeah school. because their their approach is very different but anyway not to uh, take away from anyone else but what I like about Peter Allen and the wines that he makes that there is precision and detail um, and just this drinkability through that as well he just there's a lovely harmony in his wines I mean for me the, exactly what you're saying that for me these are exciting wines but they're also extremely classic there's nothing quirky or weird or odd or different but they're not boring in any way they're no. they're, they're, they're exciting wines, wines and they're, yeah. Yeah, they're amazing and I also think that what he's done very well is his sort of approach to working with different areas for Pinot and different vineyard sites and doing smaller single vineyard bottlings and whole bunch bottlings and that sort of thing is a very good approach just to give people a different perspective on what Pinot tastes like from different areas all made in exactly the same way generally but you know, showing different character because of where they're from. And so we're tasting now, just so everybody, because they can hear us pouring. So we've got the 2018... Mabalel. Mabalel. Pinot Noir. From Cristalum. Yeah, so Mabalel is the vineyard. the Swartland, right? So we are... Yeah, so Pinot Noir in the Swartland. In the Swartland would be frowned upon. Yes, yeah, um, so hot. It would probably make a, some good raisins, but... <laughs> This is, uh, Everyone needs to make Pinot Noir Pasito in the Scotland. Yeah, basically it would work. You know, I'm just predicting the next trend. <laughs> it could, it could, anything is possible. Um, so, Mabalel is the vineyard. Uh, what's the name? It's named for the vineyard, which is in the mountains above Feliersdorp. So, pretty nowhere, you know, area. But um, it's called, I think it's called Kaimanshat. Um, but it's basically these high vineyards up in the mountains, you know, above Feliersdorp. Very cold. So we're near Bot Rivier here. Is it near we there, are or kind of in that direction. Yeah, a little yeah. bit more inland, a little, um, a little bit more higher, and yeah. I mean, so I mean, during harvest time, this stuff is getting harvested probably a, a month and a half to two months after a lot of other areas. Um, and obviously, Pinot Noir loves a cooler climate. So Elgin, uh, the Hill and Ida, uh, yeah, and this this location make for good Pinot, slow ripening, very, very clean, delicious. What a wine. What a wine. And again, talk about winemakers that embrace different techniques during the winemaking, the winemaking process. But the, 
there's obviously quite a bit of whole bunch, yeah. you know, fermentation happening here, and, and you can taste it, but it doesn't dominate. So he makes another wine, which is all whole bunch, and it's called the whole bunch Pinot. Um, mm. But I think with this wine, what he does so well, he does in most of his wines, is it's, it's just a great reflection of what that fruit tastes like. You know, if you taste this fruit when it's just been picked, it's this is it, you know. Mm. And that's what a lot of these winemakers, I think they get right, is they're not trying to go and turn that flavor and character into some other recipe. They're just trying to show that in the wine. Um, and that's what this does really well. I think all the Cristela wines do that. That's probably why he's done so well in 10 years. A little bit more than 10 years, but... Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I love it. I think you've done a really good summary on that, actually. It's just the abundance of fruit in the wine, but also um, this, like, pure, elegant edge to the wine, so it's not, it's not over-extracted. There's kind of a wood influence in a very subtle, discreet way, and a very pleasant way. And it's just fine. Oh, it's delicious. I would say that you could put that on the table of any good Pinot Noir a person that loves a good Pinot Noir obviously it's different to Pinot Noir from elsewhere it's not Burgundy it's not New Zealand it's not yep. from Oregon or wherever but you know, it's got it's own character but it's an incredible wine oh, it's, it's nice to also end on something that's quite different to the rest in terms of its classic side to it but still not boring in any way it's like also just as drinkable and like makes you want to makes you want to drink the whole bottle it's like that kind of a wine no it really does it really does. I mean, look, I mean, I've almost finished my glass in a matter of minutes. You did finish your glass. No, there's still a little bit left. <laughs> and it wasn't a full glass, in my defence. Now I'm like, oh, don't judge me. <laughs> don't judge me, it's because the wine. The I'm wine just judging you on the pina colada comment. Yeah. <laughs> Listen. You can judge me, but I'm very fucking comfortable with that decision of, and comfortable with my stance towards pina coladas because they're delicious. That's okay. We've got a nugget on. I'm gonna, we're going to do a pina colada pop-up. It's fine. Miami Vice. I'll come over for it. Miami Vice. You can do it. You can make the pina coladas. I'm making pina coladas for all of you. Just so, yeah. That's exactly what's going to happen. I won't sing everybody because they'll run out. But. Yeah, we need to have some customers. <laughs> Just make the drinks. Just make the drinks. No singing. So what's the next trend? What do you, is there a grape variety that you think is going to start showing up more in South Africa? Sure. Um, Semillon has done very well in the last couple of years. I think with Semillon Gris. Um, and so there's more and more of those that have popped up. Um, I think the dry muscats as well. Um, but I'd probably what I'd like to see, and I guess you are seeing it a bit, but what I would like to see is more of the Spanish and the Portuguese varieties. So there's a... There's a handful of them out there, and there's a lot that was planted for port production. Yep. Uh, so in the, in the last 50 years, so there's a lot yep. of decent old vi- uh, vineyards out there, and they can make some phenomenal wines. Again, I mean, Tinta Barocca is quite Tinta well Barocca established, is isn't it? And it works well. It, it yep. does, but as we were saying earlier, people don't walk into a wine shop and say, you know, I'm give me your best Tinta Barocca. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. People walk into the wine shops asking for the popular stuff, you know, the popular yep. classic, you know, grape varieties. So. It's obviously a slow process, but for me, those I'd love it if those varieties, the Tintas and the Tempranillos and the, mm. the Rodeos and those things started getting more and more popular. I think they grow really well in South Africa. There's some very good versions of them. Um, I don't think there's any exceptionally huge selling versions of them, so it's a very small niche product like most of these wines. Yep. But I think they've got huge potential. Um, and also we're talking long-term climate change, all that sort of stuff. They're just well-suited to that. They're adaptable. 
I mean, South Africa is not a cold, cold place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's hot. We should be working with grapes that deal with the heat. And I mean, that in itself is a whole podcast. Um, but yeah, it's, I, th- I think those grape varieties are great. I agree. This has been uh, this has been great. So thanks for taking me on a tour through South African wine, alternative or South Africa's alternative varieties. It's a virtual tour. It's not nearly as fun as the real tour. No, I know. It never is though, is it? But um, for people that want to uh, follow what you're doing, how can they find you and all your businesses? Um, they can easily find us on social media, Instagram, wherever, just public, so what's the public, P-U-B-L-I-K, that's the, the key difference, P-U-B-L-I-K. So just at public, or at, is it... At, at public, public wine. At public wine, on Instagram, and, and on... And, t- and Facebook, and everywhere. And Twitter, okay, yeah. so at public wine to find you, and um, the bars are in uh, Cape Town and Johannesburg. Johannesburg for people that are visiting, so check those out. Good and we do lots of tastings and events and that sort of stuff, just... Always trying to find ways to expose people to interesting wines and get them to yeah. drink different stuff. I mean, that's kind of what our business is based on: is you know showcasing all these types of wines to people that are drinking wine but aren't getting the opportunity to find these things. And for people who live in South Africa that might listen to this podcast the first time that don't know you, which I'm sure, I'm sure there's that, millions of them. I'm sure there's like none of them, but they if they want to order wine online, they just put public yeah, wine into Google and find you. They'll find us and they can order. Okay, cool. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, um, that's how to find David. So thank you so much for bringing the wines. Uh, Gwen is missing out, and I'm sure she'll be devastated. But I will find her and don't give share. Her the don't wines. share any of these wines. That you have to just finish them all yourself, and then be like, these are the best wines you've ever tried. And then all. So I'll drink series. six bottles of wine by myself, mm-hmm. and then I'll phone her and have a conversation with her about it. We'll you see should how record that, goes. that conversation. You should definitely record it. Yeah, it'll, be, it'll be amazing. Yeah. Blooper reel. <laughs> How to not fall downstairs uh-huh. after six bottles of wine. You should wine. do a blooper reel. You should definitely do that. <laughs> just go, go back on all the podcasts you've done and just like Edit out splice the out of <laughs> funny moments of you know, protests going on in the background, etc. And just throw those into, into a little mix smash, a little mixtape vibe. It'd be pretty funny. It'd be very funny. Um, so everybody who's tuning in, thanks for tuning in. Um, if you're not subscribed, please do that. That's great. Uh, if you want to see videos, this episode is not available on video, but we have many others that are on our YouTube channel, Juice Wine Podcast. Uh, just search for us. And obviously, uh, we want to stay connected via Instagram at juice.podcast. And we're on Twitter at juice underscore podcast. Gwen usually does all of this stuff. So she's very good <laughs> at making me not make a mistake. And then we're juice.show is our website. Uh, if you want to buy a tote bag or send us an email, our email address is on there. So thanks for tuning in. And until next time, cheers, David. Cheers. Thank you so much for having me.